The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning to study in the word of God. We are studying in the life of David. We are going to look in 2 Samuel 22. We're going to be looking at one of David's psalms, a song that he wrote uh, as a result of the blessings that God had given him. And it's a pretty amazing psalm, and we'll talk about it more when we get to that. Before we do dive into our study, we need to take a moment for silent prayer. We need to ensure our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God. This entails confession of sin, if needed, so that we might be filled with the Spirit, but it also involves humility. In order for us to be teachable, we have to be humble. This gives us the opportunity to humble ourselves before the truth of God's Word and before the ministry of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have this opportunity to gather here at the church. And I thank you for the folks that are here, the blessing of being able to be face-to-face with them, the blessing of being able to have this fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not something to be taken for granted. It is something you've given us as a blessing. Father, we thank you for this opportunity also we have this morning to spend some time learning the truth of your word. It is something that nourishes our souls. We know, Father, that uh, we need rain to nourish the soil, to nourish the land around us. Well, our souls need your word to nourish our souls. And, Father, we pray that we would be teachable, that we would be listening to what it is your word has to say, that we would be ready to receive your truth so that it can do what it does in our souls, nourish us, Bless our souls, gives us, gives us an understanding, draws us closer to you. We pray that we would be teachable during this time. Help us set aside all the distractions of life, that we can focus our thoughts on you and the message that you want us to receive this morning, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. I was going to start out before we jump into the David study. I was going to start out just talking about uh, something that's been on my mind. It's just an interesting thing. I talked about it a little bit last hour about how you got to be careful about, you know, what you're watching on television and things. And I talked about a commercial. Some of you were here for this, but some of you weren't. It's a commercial, and I believe it's for an insurance company, but I don't remember. But they show people going around helping one another out, and there's nothing wrong with that, as I pointed out. There's nothing wrong with being generous and gracious and helping others out. But then at the end of the commercial, uh, the commercial says, because all we have is one another. And it's a very subtle message, but the subtle message is that, boy, if it weren't for uh, one another, nobody would be able to take care of us. Nobody would be able to, you know, well, God is left out of that. And that's a huge and glaring omission because all we have is not one another. Now, we do have one another. I talk to you guys all the time about the, what a blessing it is to have one another. It's one of the blessings God has given us is that we do have one another. Uh, I count on you uh, for your iron sharpening my iron. I count on you for uh, questions and for challenging me when I teach something and searching the scriptures to see if, see if these things are so. And I count on you for spiritual refreshment. Because that's part of what the body of Christ does, is provide each other with spiritual refreshment. But if you think about it, if that was all we had, we would be in trouble. Because what we have is so much greater. What we have is a relationship with Almighty God. And the fellowship, if you remember, I've taught it before, the fellowship that's spoken of in First John chapter 1 is fellowship with one another But that fellowship is as a result of our fellowship with God. And so the fellowship that we have, the dynamic, I'll go beyond all that, the dynamic that we have between one another is a function of our relationship with God. If this is just a big social club and we're all here just hanging out and, 
and, uh, and doing that sort of thing, then what are we doing here? We're wasting our time. That's not what this is all about. This is all about the relationship that we have with God and how he is working in and through us. And that creates a dynamic within the body of Christ. That is what facilitates the relationship that we have with one another. But the, my point I was making is you've got to be careful what, what those kinds of little subtle messages that you, you see on television. And, and so I've, I've mentioned it before, you know, that as believers, we should always be filtering everything through the truth of God's word, right? I mean, it should always be filtered through that. And we should, when you hear, when you hear that message, all we have is one another, your, your, your alarm should go off. No, that's not all we have, right? You should immediately think, wow, what a message that is. And so, and when it comes to the way things are uh, treated in the news and so on and so forth, I've mentioned this before. One of the things you've got to do is go to the next level. You've got to realize it's not only how things are being reported, but it's what is being reported. Because when you look, when you turn on like if you turn on the local newscast at 6 o'clock and you watch the news for 30 minutes, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this or not. So first of all, the whole reason I'm turning it on is because I want to watch the weather, right? That's what I'm really interested in is the weather. And the weather is going to take up five minutes of that 30 minutes. And then the sports takes up five minutes of the 30 minutes. And then commercials take up how much? Have you ever paid attention? It's outrageous. So maybe you're getting, maybe you're getting 10 minutes of actual news being reported. So if they're only reporting 10 minutes worth of news, they have to go through and figure out which stories they're going to report. And what comes to my mind at the moment is we've had the passing of two prominent black leaders of our nation. One of them, Representative John Lewis, right? Am I getting his name right? Yeah, John Lewis, isn't it? And, uh, and he passed away, and I, I dare you to turn on the television without hearing about the man's passing. And I'm not, begru- I'm not begrudging that, but I dare you to turn on the news without hearing about that. But how many of you have seen uh, very many reports about the passing of Herman Cain? Probably not too many. You probably one, right? One. And so what bothers me about that is if you know anything about Herman Cain and his life, he's accomplished many, many, many things. And uh, he's not only a voice uh, for conservative thought, but he's also a, he was also a brother in Christ. He is now face to face with the Lord. He is an individual whose life should be celebrated to the same extent, but it's not going to happen. And those things should come to your attention. You should notice that. That indicates a bias. That's all there is to it and indicates a bias. I was very sad. I must tell you, I was very sad when I heard about him passing. Now, he died. In his case, he died as a direct result of COVID-19. COVID-19 is what killed uh, Herman Cain. Now, uh, he—I don't know how many of you, how many of you had ever listened to any of his radio broadcasts and whatnot. A few of you had. Fantastic, fantastic, and it's one of the reasons why I believe if it hadn't been for, if it hadn't been for the mud slinging, uh, I'm, I'm going to be nice. If it hadn't been for the for the mud slinging folks who were going to do anything and everything they could to try to discredit the man, I believe he would have been elected president. When he was running, because he was uh, on his program, he was able to explain things in such a way that it made real good sense. You could listen to him and you could understand things that were kind of complicated. I think he was doing that for the American people when he was running for president. He was able to explain things in such a way that people were getting it. He was actually zooming up the polls and then they threatened to make his life absolutely miserable and I believe, I never, never heard him say definitively, but I believe he stepped out of the race for his wife's sake because the mud that was going to be slung in his direction was going to be ugly and it was going to be something that was going to be tough for her to take. You know, along those lines, I think of, of any of the wives of any of the politicians. I mean, they have to, you know, the husbands, they have to deal with all kinds of horrible things as a part of the process. But I think he was trying to protect her. But it really makes me sad that the man... Uh, passed away but at the same time i know where he is 
I praise God that I know where he is now. But at the same time, we lost a, we lost a great man there, but he's not going to be celebrated. So pay attention to that kind of thing. Pay attention to how things are presented. Pay attention to what's presented. These things are significant uh, because as, as we were, you know, as we were talking about in the prayer meeting just now, and that's part of the reason I'm, I'm bringing all this up, is we were talking about in the prayer meeting just now, one of the things that was prayed for is that our country really needs to, to see, for the encouragement of the believers, needs to see more visibly, if you will, the presence of God. And, and what was prayed about is the idea of, you know, how, what, what, how many times have we seen miracles where, where water is turned to wine or 5,000 are fed from a loaf of bread, right, or, or anything like that, right? How, how many times have we seen something like that? We don't really see those things. But here's where I'm going. I believe that if that happened, but by the way, miracles are happening every day. Don't get me wrong. We're just not seeing the kind that are, the, that are just like the, oh, wow, miracles that are blowing people away. I mean, miracles happen every single day. And you probably have, have experienced the presence of God in your own life. At least I hope you have, right? You've experienced the presence of God in your own life. But our nation needs to know that God is here. Because what, it, what we're watching is it seems like the godless society, the godless world that we live in is winning. That's what it seems like. And we want to see God. You know, we want to see his presence. But I believe, the reason I've talked about all of this stuff is I believe if a miracle happened and 5,000 people were fed from a loaf of bread, I don't think it would be reported. I don't think you'd hear about it. I don't know how we'd find out about it, but maybe we would. Maybe it would show up on somebody's Twitter account. I don't know. My point is... We live in a world where any information about God is going to be suppressed. That's the truth. Any information about God is going to be suppressed because, what's that? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it is being, it is being suppressed. And, what I, what my, and this is something I want you to join me in prayer about. And I prayed about it in the prayer meeting just now. That as the adversary seemingly, seemingly is gaining more and more ground that that would actually be something that would bring about a true fire burning in the hearts of believers, that the scales would come off of people's eyes, that these seeming victories that the adversary is having would actually be thrown right back in his face and that the whole thing would actually result in the strengthening of the body of Christ as opposed to the weakening of the body of Christ. So join me in that prayer because it can be discouraging sometimes. But we got to remember God's in control. God's in control. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? Greater is God that's in us than he that's in the world. Who's in the world? Satan, right? This is his cosmos system. And we got to remember if he is for us, who can be against us, Right? Those things are important to remember, especially when we see things trending the way they are. We're going, oh, my gosh, at this point, I mean, people are being mocked for their faith. Uh, you know, we live in a world where we live in a world where we've we've gone from a place. I, I was amazed at this. We've gone from a place where we were talking about one guy kneeling during the national anthem to the place where we're talking about one guy standing during the, during the national anthem. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that astounding? That guy's truly brave for doing that, by the way. Truly brave for doing that, and I appreciate that. But anyway, pay attention. That's all I'm saying. As believers, pay attention. View things, and actually a better way to understand it is view things through the prism of God's Word, right? The prism, because what the prism does, what does the prism do? It breaks it out where you can see all the different colors, right? And that's what we want, is whatever information is coming in, we want to break it out. We want to be able to see, is this, is this truth? Is this a lie? Is this somebody who's blending the two? We want to be able to see it. And so the prism of God's word helps us to see what's true and what's not. So to always look through the prism of God's word. All right. Life of David. David's Psalm of Deliverance. The Lord provided David with peace near the end of his earthly life. 2 Samuel 22.1. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord. I love that language, right? He spoke the words of this song to the Lord. Keep that in mind when you're singing hymns. When we start singing hymns again, that's what you're supposed to be doing, is speaking the words of the song to the Lord. Spoke, by the way, you're speaking to one another as well. Spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
Now, the final hand of Saul, and we're not going to go back through this because we just studied it. The final hand of Saul directed against David came in that Gibeonite incident. Remember that whole thing with the Gibeonites where we had the, the, they were, they, the, Saul had apparently gone and killed some of the Gibeonites, even though there was a, a, a covenant made between the two, if you will, a treaty made between the two such that they would not, uh, they would not kill any of the Gibeonites. And they would end up being servants to the people of Israel. And uh, the Gibeonites, they apparently got killed. Saul killed some of them. And so they were upset. And so that whole thing happened. And that, that's the very last thing in the life of David where he had to deal with consequences of what happened uh, with Saul. Right? That was the last that he dealt with that. And the very last hand of all of his enemies directed against David came in the battles waged against the descendants of Goliath. And we studied that as well. In the second half of chapter 21, we studied about how uh, the Philistines were waging war with Israel and David went down and they fought against the Philistines. And we saw David became weary, uh, Ishbi Benob, a descendant of the giant. And we looked at all of these things in chapter 21. And this was the final incident in David's life where his enemies came up against him. And I'm not I'm not going to go into the subtleties of it, but I think it is significant that the final incident that David dealt with in terms of his enemies were of the giants, right? The Nephilim, the Rephaim, uh, the giants. And so there's, there is a little bit of a significance there that that was the final, de- the final battles he dealt with, with with regard to those individuals. And David decided to write a song of thankfulness to the Lord that is recorded both here and in Second Samuel 22 and also in Psalm 18. Psalm 18, and it says, and, and by the way, this is just so you, to help you understand. If you, when you look at, this is the New American Standard Bible, but yours is probably similar. This little line right here uh, at the top that's in italics there, the Lord prays for, for giving deliverance. That's what's called a pericope. And it has been added by the translators. It's not part of the original language. This is just them saying, oh, by the way, that's what this is. But in the Psalms, you'll notice this little first part right here. It's shown as though it's sort of a, uh, something that's just added just to help you understand. This is actually part of the Hebrew. Verse 1 down here is actually not the first verse in the Hebrew. <laughs> It starts here for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord who spoke uh, to the Lord, the words of this song in the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, that's all in the Hebrew. Right. So the first thing up there is a pericope. But this part here in the Psalms, this is all part of the psalm right here. And interesting, it says in the day, in the day that the Lord delivered him. In this case, that word is used to describe the time. That time during his reign when he had been delivered from all of that and he, he realized that he was now in a time of peace. Because remember, David's reign was largely dominated by turmoil, right? <laughs> he had turmoil almost all of his days. But at the end of his reign, he got some peace. And when he got into that time of peace, uh, David decided to write a song about it and, and give praise to God. One of the things I want to point out to you the two of these are not exactly the same as you're going to see in a minute. I'm just going to point this out while we're here. The very first line of uh, this psalm in Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, by strength. That is not in Second Samuel 22. The two records of this hymn are slightly different. However, regardless of the differences, the basic content of the hymn remains the same. If we go back to Second Samuel 22, I'll get to that in just a second here. The very first line of this is, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. See that? And that's actually, if I go to Psalm 18, that's actually the second. See that? The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. So they're not exactly the same. But I went through the whole thing. I thought, well, you know what? I'll go through and I'll highlight the differences. I'm not going to do that. Because if you go, you can go through and read that yourself. The reality of it is the two of them are almost identical. There's very subtle differences between the two, but they're essentially the same. 
Because is God, he says, I love you, my Lord, and you are my strength. It's what he's expressing in this psalm. It's no different from one or the other. And by the way, this particular hymn, Psalm 18, and what we have recorded here in Second Samuel 22, is widely regarded as one of the greatest hymns of thanksgiving and praise ever written by anyone, period. This is considered to be one of the greatest of all. Right here, David wrote this one as a result of God giving him deliverance. First of all, in this, uh, this deal, in verses 2 and 3, he identifies that the Lord was his crag or rock. And we're going to see there's two different words there. His crag or his rock, uh, his fortress, his deliverer, his refuge, his shield, his horn, which means his source of strength, his stronghold, and his savior. In verses 2 and 3. Now, what's the difference between a crag and a rock? Anybody know? Yeah, a crag is actually a crag is a is a rock that kind of has a little bit of a recess in it. It's it's the it's kind of a place where you could go and hide, right? So one of them, the rock, you stand on the rock and it's your foundation. The other one, the crag, kind of represents uh, a refuge, a place that you can hide. They're both actually mentioned here in this passage. Um, here it says, "The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer." That word is actually crag. It's a different word. The Lord is my crag. My fortress and my deliverer, my rock. He says here, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. We're going to get to that in, uh, in, in a second. Uh, but the idea, and he says, I'm saved from my enemies. But the reality of it is, um, I'm on the wrong one here. Let me switch back. Two and three. The stronghold, it's a little bit differently worded here. He goes, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. You notice how he mentions refuge a second time here? Back in Psalm 18, let me go back to it again, sorry. In Psalm 18, he doesn't do that. It's written, in a, it's recorded in a different way. Refuge is only mentioned once. So you've got to pay attention. There's subtle differences, but it still means the same thing. It's his refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold of my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. Now, see, I've talked about, we talk about salvation. We talk about the three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future, right? We talked about that. And the salvation, the idea of being saved from the power, uh, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin, right? The penalty initially, the power of sin day by day, and the very presence of sin eventually. And here, however, David is talking about something different. Uh, right when he talks about being saved here, I, he talks about it more in verse four. We'll get to in a second. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. When he says savior here, he's talking about actually saving him from his enemies, saving him from violence. So in this particular passage, he's not actually talking about God as his savior, capital S, right? He's talking about God saving him from his enemies, saving him from his troubles, Right, my rock. Now, so he talks about his crag, his rock, his fortress, the deliverer, which of course is important here, uh, refuge, shield, horn, stronghold, and savior. So all of those things are important. And he then extolled the faithfulness of the Lord who answered his prayers. That's what we get to in the next section, starting in verse 4. And all of these things, by the way, keep this list of things sort of in your mind uh, the crag. Uh, the rock, the fortress, the deliverer, the refuge, the shield, the horn, all of those things. Keep them in mind as we go through this because he starts off the hymn by naming all of these things that God is. And then he kind of goes through the rest of the hymn highlighting those things. In verses 4 through 7, he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry for help came into his ears. Now, I'll ask you a question. When David says this, so first of all, some of this is fairly dramatic, by the way, which is, which is poetic license, right? I mean, he's, made, he's painting a very dramatic picture here, yes? He says, the torrents of destruction, the waves of death, the torrents of destruction, the cords of Sheol 
encompassed me, right? He's painting this picture about how he felt like he was on the verge of death, right? There were times when his enemies were about to overwhelm and overcome him, and he felt like he was on the verge of death. But again, this is very, very poetic language. The snares of death, right, confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God, and from his temple. This is David writing this. Is there an earthly temple at the time? No. Hasn't been built yet, has it? And he's not talking about the tabernacle. There is a tabernacle, but there is no temple yet. What is he talking about here? He's talking about his heavenly temple, right? He's talking about God's heavenly temple, his dwelling place, his heavenly dwelling place. He says, from his temple, his heavenly temple, he heard my voice and my cry for help came into his ears, right? And it is very significant that he would say that. He's saying, I cried out and God in heaven heard my voice. David described the amazing power of the Almighty God who instills fear in those who oppose him in the angelic conflict. This is an interesting passage. This is an interesting passage in verses 8 through 16. This is definitely language of angelic conflict. There's no doubt about it. And, and you'll see that as we read through it. Verses 8 through 16. I'm going to read through that. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Now, is this literally happening or is this descriptive language? <laughs> this is descriptive language. It gives us a pretty vivid picture of, of God in this, though, doesn't it? He, ba- he bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He appeared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Now, all of this is painting a picture of who he is and showing his power. But what I want you to understand is all of that language is vivid language of the ongoing battles that are being waged in the angelic conflict. This is language of angelic conflict. This is language of God dealing with the spiritual enemies that he has to deal with, right? That is language of who he is. And it paints this picture of Almighty God in that conflict, battling in that conflict. That same infinite power of God that is, on, is evidenced here, that same infinite power of God rescues man in the midst of that conflict. We live in the midst of that conflict. Hello? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot if I would get at least one amen, but uh, I saw some nods. We're not much of an amen in church, but uh, I figured that one might get some because we live in the midst of that conflict, folks. Verses 17 through 20, now he brings it down to us, right? And he talks about it in terms of him, but it applies to all of us. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. Now, if you think about David and his mighty men, and you think about all of the things that he was able to do in battle and in conflict, if you think about what he was capable of as a warrior, who was too strong for David? So he's talking, he definitely is talking about the enemies that he faced, but he's talking about something even greater than that, isn't he? He's talking about the spiritual enemies that were coming up against him. Delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. Uh, They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Right? So this is what God can do for us. So God is, this picture that's being painted is God is there in heaven. He's actively involved in all of the, the battles that are going on in the angelic conflict. Which, by the way, that's, that's the broader conflict. That's the, that's the thing that we, fa- we are facing every single day. And he is battling that war. But guess what? He's the exact same God who can come to your aid 
in the midst of calamity and conflict. He is the one, when you're confronted by an enemy, he is the one that can come to your aid. So we need to remember that. So he's painting this, he's painting this picture of the power of God and explaining how that God, that powerful God, is the one who came to his aid. After failing in the Bathsheba incident, which was a pretty serious failure, yes, it was, uh, David lived a godly life and had been blessed. And that's the picture he's painting here in these verses. He's not saying he never did any of these things. He's talking about the life that he lived after God taught him a few lessons along the way. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God. See, he's talking about his behavior during all this time of conflict with his enemies and with the things going on with Saul. He's not talking about his failures. He's talking about how he acted righteously during all of the times. And, and he eventually was blessed because of that, because he's been given this peace. Yeah, I've kept the ways of the Lord. I've not acted wickedly against my God for all his ordinances were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him and I kept myself from iniquity. Again, not his whole life. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about during that time when all that conflict was happening and how God delivered him from those things. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness before his eyes. And the good news about that is that paints a picture for each and every one of us. I got to tell you, folks, and I probably won't ever do it. uh, But if I were to actually sit down and take a Bible class and I were to actually detail for, for you all of the heinous sins I have committed in my life, uh, believe this church would be empty on the next the next Sunday. Uh, I I have committed many sins in my life, and some of them are pretty bad. Uh, and so God and His grace has forgiven those sins, and I now am capable of walking in righteousness by means of the grace of God and by means of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me. And that is a, this passage should actually bring that to mind. We shouldn't look at this and go, oh, well, David's lying. No, he's not. He's talking about how he was able to walk in righteousness after all of that. And he was able to bring glory to God in the way he walked during those times of conflict and all the things that were happening. And that's what he's saying. And it's, again, it should bring hope to every one of us because everybody in this room, as I look around this room, every single one of you could probably tell some stories about some things that you've done in your lifetime. And uh, we all have those stories that we could tell. The reality of it is God is a God of grace. And God is a God of forgiveness and praise him for that. And as Ken will tell you, I always have to bring it up, but as, as Ken will tell you, God is a God of mercy. And you know the difference between grace and mercy, right? Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. And mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. Right? God is a God of mercy as well as a God of grace. And thanks be to him for that. Praise be to him for that. Interestingly, in this little section in verses 26 through 28, he paints this really neat picture about, he's talking here about God has dealt with him, right? How God has dealt with him. And then he points out how God is the perfect one to deal with everyone in a perfect way. The perfect judge. Verses 26 through 28. He says, with the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And this one's interesting. It says, and with the perverted, you show yourself astute. What the Hebrew actually says there, and with the twisted, you show yourself twisted. <laughs> That's what it actually says. And so he deals with everyone uh, in a perfect way, right? And I, I don't mind the way they translated that, but the Hebrew actually says, with the twisted, you show yourself twisted. And it says, and you save an afflicted people. But then what does it finish with? But your eyes are on the haughty whom you abase. And by the way, I believe when David wrote that, he was actually thinking of his own haughtiness uh, during that time when he was not walking with God, right? During his own arrogance uh, when, he was, when he was looking to himself rather than looking to God. So he, this just talks about God being the perfect judge. He knows how to deal with everyone. And see, that should give you comfort because as we look around and we see things in the world around us and we see a lot of times it's easy, by the way, to think, man, these these people are doing these things and there's no consequences. Doesn't it seem like that sometimes 
These people are doing these things and there's no consequences. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> because ultimately, everyone's going to have to deal with God. Our society may not do anything. There may be no consequences in one particular city or in one particular situation. But God is the judge, capital J. And he will deal with whomever uh, you may think is getting away with everything they're getting away with. But God is going to deal with them. Now, this next section, verses 29 through 46, uh, David says some neat things here, by the way. And go back and remember that original list I gave you, the crag and the rock and the fortress. He talks about those things here. He knew very well that the Lord had given him success in the battlefield. David was a very, very successful leader in battle. Very, very successful warrior. No doubt about it. And in these verses, he shows he understands that God was the one who did that. He says here, for you, he starts out, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illuminates my darkness. In other words, what he was able to see, he was able to see because God showed it to him. For by you, and it says, for by you I can run upon a troop. That's a terrible translation. Uh, It's actually a barricade is how that should be translated. You have to understand what you say. Well, how could the translators do such a thing? Uh, How do I say this? Uh, The Greek language that we have in our New Testament is a very precise language, and it's very much a language that we can relate to as English speakers because it has clear rules as to how it works, and it's very often it's, 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 it needs to be understood a particular way, and you really can't take it one way or another. You have to take it the way the language dictates. Hebrew is not like that. Hebrew is much more art than science when it comes to translating the Hebrew. There are many very familiar known phrases, um, but, you know, there's all kinds of different words in the Hebrew that mean many different things. If you, go, if you were to go look through a Hebrew lexicon, you'd see one single word can mean 25 different things, and it depends on the context and how it's used. So a word, for example, that can mean to bow down to the ground uh, that word can be, mean a whole lot of different things. A word that means lift up. I've talked about this one before. I just, I just remember this one, a word that means to lift up. It, it just literally means to lift something up. It actually, in some context, it means to forgive. Because the language is there's somebody bowing down before you that is begging for your forgiveness, and you lift them up. And when you lift them up, you, you're, you're saying, I forgive you, right? So the Hebrew language is like that. And this word that's translated troop right there, it doesn't mean troop in this context. It means a barricade. It really is talking about a, 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 a place of, of strength, if you will. You have to, you'd have to look at the word, but they should have translated that barricade. And it makes more sense when you read the rest of it. For by you, I can run upon a barricade. By my God, I can leap over a wall, right? So it's, this is talking about battlefield stuff, right? He's running upon a, a barricade or, or he's able to leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. That's an amazing statement, right? It's been tested and proven. That's what it means. The word of the Lord is tested and proven. It is truth. You can count on that. His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Again, we're getting back to to some of that language at the very beginning of this. Who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress. He sets the blameless in his way. Now, all of this is important because... He's throwing all of this out in the middle of talking about what God has done for him in battle. But see, think about that. He's, he's been shielded in battle by God. He's, he's been able to stand on God as a rock in the middle of these battles. He is, he is his fortress in the middle of all of this. That's why he's bringing all of these things up. And then look what it says there. By the way, you go back to that whole section. You, that whole section where he was talking about his righteousness and how God had actually blessed him because of his, him walking that way. Verse 33, and he sets the blameless in his way. What is David doing there? He's saying, God's the one who put me on the course of righteousness. He's the one who made me be able to walk in a way that's blameless. That's what he's saying. He's acknowledging that the reason he was able to have a, a godly walk is because of God. Verse 34 He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me on high places. He trains my hands for battle. 
so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. All right, so see, that David is saying that God himself trained him to be able to be the one to know how to fight, to know how to be a, a warrior. You've also given me the shield of your salvation, and your help makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. Think about that. He's in the middle of a battle. What happens if he slips and falls? Now he's vulnerable, right? My feet have not slipped. All of this is important. He's not just... And by the way, there's a, there's a double meaning to all of this. Amen, right? He's talking about the battlefield scenario, but he's talking about life in general as well, isn't he? Verse 38, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. And I have devoured them and shattered them so that they did not rise, and they fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. So now he's saying, not only have I been trained for battle, but I've had the strength for battle because of God. You've girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You've also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. And that did happen in his life, by the way. Then I... Then I punished them as the dust of the earth, pulverized, excuse me, I pulverized them as the dust of the earth, and I crushed and stamped them as the mire of the streets. You have also delivered me from the contentious of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners, by the way, and, and that, that even speaks of, uh, that even speaks of the, the service of the Gibeonites. Foreigners pretend, I love this, foreigners pretend obedience to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. He recognizes to a certain extent that some people are just feigning obedience, right? They're obeying all right, but their heart's not really in it. (laughs) In verse 46, foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortresses. So he's seeing battle. He's seen it, right? He's been going to wage, wage a battle against someone, and the next thing he knows, they're all trembling, and they're fearing, and they're running for their lives. They're leaving their fortresses and running for their lives. Who brought that about? God brought it about, and he knows it. And again, there's a double meaning to all of this because he's talking about his battlefield experience and his success in the battlefield, and he's talking also about his successes in life in the angelic battles. Then he concludes this beautiful hymn by acknowledging that all these things, one last time here, acknowledging that all these things, his walk of righteousness, his many blessings, his military victories, etc., We're all from God. All of these things were from God. And as such, thanksgiving and praise belong to God. So that's the conclusion of the hymn, verses 47 through 51. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. Exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and brings down peoples under me, who also brings me out from my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. See, I think that's actually even a, a recognition of the things within his own family. There, you rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And by the way, and that's his seed which is translated descendants, and I think that's correct in this, in this context. So God is a tower of deliverance to... And he's recognizing, by the way, that he himself is God's king, right? That he was put there by God. Shows loving kindness to his anointed and then to David and his descendants forever. And that loving there, kindness there, by the way, is the chesed, which we talked about before. God's loving kindness, his loyal love. And so David is, David is, 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 is given a, a psalm of tribute, a psalm of praise to God. And it is, it, again, it's important to recognize that he's reached a point in his life where he actually has some peace. And so he's taken the time to write this psalm of praise to God because of the peace that he's able to experience. And it's also important to understand that this is toward the end of his life. This is toward the end of David's life, and he composes this, looking back on his own life and realizing all the things that God has done for him. Uh, But this is a powerful hymn because he speaks about many things. He brings in the angelic conflict. He talks about God as a, as the, the rock, the shield, the fortress, all of those things. And, and again, in this particular Psalm, the context of uh, being saved is in the context of being saved from his enemies. But David for sure recognized 
God as his Savior, capital S. Amen? I mean, he no doubt understood that God was his Savior, capital S, and uh, he believed in God, and he was a man after God's own heart. All right, we'll come back next time, and we're going to look at next chapter. We're going to be looking at uh, some of uh, David's mighty men of valor. That's going to be kind of fun. We'll spend some time looking at who the, who the mighty men of valor were uh, there in, uh, in David's army. But we'll take a look now at our scripture of the week. This is Communion Sunday, so uh, we'll look at this scripture of the week, and it'll allow us to finish up a little early so we can have communion. Romans 9, 30 through 32, uh, we'll all read these together. I know there's a comma here, but we're going to stop at the end of 32. That's our scripture for today. Let's read this together. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So this is kind of a follow-up to what we looked at last week with the James chapter 2 passage. Uh, the, the Jews made the mistake of trying to pursue righteousness on the basis of the works of the law. And they were unable to arrive even at the law itself because they were not doing it on the basis of faith. They were doing it, they were doing it on the basis of works. And Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying we cannot attain righteousness. By the way, you cannot attain righteousness in any aspect. So we, know, we all know about imputed righteousness, fancy term, imputed. All it means is righteousness has been credit, credited to our account. Each and every one of us as born-again believers, if you, have, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, at the moment that you did that, God credited to your account, and this is just language to help you understand, right? Credited to your account His righteousness. So now, instead of God looking on you and seeing unrighteousness, or instead of God looking at you and seeing what we would call relative righteousness, in other words, you're more righteous than the guy next to you, right? Which, how much is that righteousness worth? Nothing, right? <laughs> so instead of God looking at us and seeing unrighteousness and relative righteousness, he now sees his own righteousness, which is perfect righteousness. You cannot get that righteousness on the, by, the, by, uh, by means of works. You cannot attain to that righteousness by means of works. It's only given on the basis of faith. It's also true of your walk. Now, are works involved in your walk? Yes. Works are involved in your walk because God has prepared works for us that we would walk in them, right? He prepared works for us in eternity past that we would walk in them. As we saw last week in the book of James, however... Faith is what saves us. Faith alone in Christ alone. As believers who are saved, God has designed us and called, designed a life for us that's involved with the works that he prepared for us. But it's not part of our salvation. It's merely part of the believer's walk. But you can't do those works unless you do them as a matter of faith. You cannot have a righteous walk unless your works are performed as a function of faith. And James was actually teaching that. We saw that. James was teaching that, that it needs to be your faith working together with your works. Remember that language? Faith working together with your works. Because if Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain and he's willing to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain and he's not doing it as a, as a matter of faith, what's that worth? Nothing. That's not worth, worth anything at all. So if you're not doing what you're doing as unto the Lord and you're not doing it as a matter of faith, then what you're doing is not, is not actually bearing fruit for God as we studied in, in Romans, right? The idea of bearing fruit for God. We want to be doing whatever we're doing in our spiritual walk, whatever we're doing in our work, if you will, for the Lord as a function of faith. It has to be. Because no righteousness can be attained, either, either imputed righteousness or the righteousness of the walk, through works alone. 
It has to be a function of faith. So you have to believe, for example, you have to believe that what you're doing is something that God wants you to do. That's the first thing. I mean, think about that function of faith. You have to believe this is the will of God for me. I'm doing his will right here. So that's a function of faith. Did you have a question? Yeah, well, see, so you're beating me to the punch, right? (laughs) You're beating me to the punch. Yes, we can work without faith, and I'm going to get to that. By the way, at the judgment seat, when we sit at the Bema seat, all that work that we do apart from faith, it's going to be smoke. It's going to burn up. It's wood, hay, and stubble. They're dead works. Yes, thank you. They are dead works. And, uh, and so there's, no, there's, there's nothing that's going to come out of that. It's exactly right. We're not bearing fruit for God. It's going to all burn up. You can. But we're, this is what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to be functioning in whatever we're doing for the Lord. We're supposed to be doing it as a matter of faith. And I, as I said, the faith starts with believing that what you're doing is the will of God. And then beyond that, your faith should then continue in recognizing what we know from the Scriptures that the opportunity to do that ministry was granted to us by God. And the effectiveness of that ministry is going to be provided by God. Do you see what I'm saying? So we, we're asked to be obedient. We're asked to be diligent. So, for example, right here, I'm the easiest one to do, but it applies to all ministries. I'm the easiest one to do. God has called me to a ministry where I, I am a, a pastor teacher of a local church. I am here to shepherd and teach a local church. And there's a lot involved in that. There's a lot of things that are done. But let's just focus right now on the teaching side of things. So I sit down and I study the Word of God. Prepare lessons, and I step up here behind the pulpit and I teach the things of the Word of God. That open door for ministry was provided by God. The effectiveness of this ministry is provided by God. If, you, if I think for a minute, if I start to think for a minute that the reason why this ministry is effective and the reason why your lives are being changed is because, oh, I spent so much time studying the Word and I I put in the effort. And so the minute I start thinking of that, I have lost track of where I'm going and faith is no longer involved. My faith is an... The only reason I can stand up here behind this pulpit and preach God's Word to you is because of faith. If I thought I were doing this on my own, I would never do it. I would be scared to death to get up behind this pulpit and do this. But it's a function of faith because I know that God has opened the door for this ministry. God is providing me through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ability to study and teach his word. And he's providing the effectiveness on the other side, too. When you hear the word, he's making it effective in your life. You see what I'm saying? So it's all a function of faith. Faith is a part of all of it. And by the way, he also provided the, the giftedness to be able to do it as well, the spiritual gift to do it. But do you see where I'm going with this? Faith is part of every single step. You guys at Arvix, everything you're doing in that ministry, you have an incredible ministry. That door for ministry was opened by the Lord. And you walk through that door, praise God for that. And everything you do in terms of being effective for the Lord of that ministry is an effectiveness that he supplies. And the people that come, all the people that come and participate in that ministry, these are things that God is bringing to that ministry. He is in every bit of it, and that is how, and I know you do, that is how you have to approach the ministry is recognizing God's hand in every piece of it, right? And so when you do that ministry as unto the Lord, you're doing it recognizing by faith that God is active in every part of that ministry, every aspect of that ministry. So this is what Paul is saying they were trying to attain to righteousness. By the way, he's even going, he's going back to that original one too. They were, trying to, they were trying to attain salvation through works, which was never going to happen, right? Uh, it has to be by faith in Christ. But he would, they were trying to attain uh, salvation. But, but think about this from a broader spectrum. You cannot attain to any righteousness whatsoever apart from faith. And then he says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, again, he's talking about salvation here. And he goes on in verse 33, which is not part of our scripture of the week this week. He says, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Right? 
So what he's trying to say is, you know what, when Christ came, he himself was going to be a stone that they stumbled over. He was going to be a rock of offense, and there were going to be those who stumbled over him. Now, he wasn't supposed to be a stumbling stone, but there were going to be those who would stumble over him because they would reject him as the Messiah, and they would not see that he was the one. But he who believes in him will not be disappointed. There's where the faith come back, comes back in. But they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They completely missed it. But I want you as born-again believers to not stumble as well. I want you as believers to realize that you can walk in your walk according to the ways of the world. You can try to accomplish the ministries, as Connie pointed out. You can try to accomplish whatever ministry or work you're doing for the Lord. You can try to accomplish it in, in the energy of the flesh. You can try to do it again with worldly, accomplish it with worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. You can inject the world into all of this and you can do everything that you do in a way that is apart from God. And if you do, as Deb pointed out perfectly, those are dead works. If your faith is not working together with your works, then there is no righteousness, no true righteousness in it at all. Yes. Yes. That's a very good point. Boy, what a great thing to bring up. Connecting us back to, to John chapter 15, abiding in the vine. Because if you think about it, we, we are the ones we're supposed to abide, right? We're supposed to abide. We're supposed to be connected to the vine. Who's the vine? <laughs> God... That, that's Christ, isn't it? The vine is Christ. The, who's the vine dresser? The Father, right? The Father's the vine dresser and Christ is the vine. If we abide in the vine, guess what? Our, we're just a branch. We're producing fruit. But is it really us? Or is it the vine? It's the vine. The vine is providing all the nourishment. The vine is providing everything so that we would produce fruit. It is about abiding. You're exactly right. The, the, the idea of the faith working together with the works is connected directly to John 15 and abiding in the vine. That's absolutely true. If we're abiding in the vine, then we're functioning in the, in the right way. We're walking in the right way where the, what we're going to bear forth is the fruit of God, the fruit that glorifies God. And he's going to get all the glory for it. See, we just saw that. We just saw that with this, this hymn that David wrote. He wants to give all the glory to God, the praise and the glory to God. That's the, exactly how it's supposed to work in our own lives. Because as we abide in the vine, and as we bear the fruit that God is producing, then all the glory goes to him. Right? I say that all the time about the, the things that God is doing in this local church. The amazing things that I see happening in this lo- local church, to God be the glory. He's the one. He's amazing, and he's doing amazing things in all of our lives. And see, he gets the glory, and it's because it's all a matter of faith. See, that's what we're learning here. It's all a matter of faith. Even if, Faith doesn't stop at the moment of salvation. That's when faith begins, right? That's when faith begins, and that's when every single step is supposed to be executed in faith. And, is, and, that, and that's that beautiful picture of abiding in the vine. That's what we're all supposed to be doing. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful picture that's been painted here, this wonderful thing that we have to imagine of abiding in the vine and being able to bear fruit, knowing that the fruit comes from you. And what a beautiful picture that we have here, knowing that our faith is supposed to work together with our works. That it's, faith is an ongoing thing. We live by faith and not by sight. Every single day is a function of faith, or it's supposed to be. And Father, we can, we can take our eyes off of you. And we can get so wrapped up in whatever the work is that we are doing that we can forget that we, we need you every step of the way. And we can try to do these things in the energy of the flesh. But, Father, there is no true fruit that's going to be born from that. And, Father, there's, uh, there's no glory for you in that. It's, it's all about selfishness at that point. It's all about what we, we're doing and how important we think we are. Father, all along the way, please help us remember that you've opened doors of ministry to us. You've given us the strength. You've given us the wisdom. You've given us the wherewithal by which we can function in those ministries. And you're the one who's going to produce the the beautiful effects of those ministries. You're the one who's going to produce the fruit. 
So it really is freeing, actually, if we understand this idea. It's really freeing because your hand is involved in every bit of it. And so it really doesn't depend upon us. It's all a matter of trust and obey and be diligent. That's what you're asking of us, that we would trust you, we would obey, and we would be diligent in all that we do, and we would rely upon you to bring about the perfect result. Father, we thank you for that reminder today. We thank you for the hymn that we studied that was written by David and his praise and thanksgiving for you and the picture that he painted of how awesome and almighty you are. We're thankful for his, the imagery that was painted in that psalm and for his beautiful writing of it. We thank you for all the things that we're learning from his life. We thank you for all these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.